Hi, queer fam. It's Princess Jenny coming to you at the top of the episode with some super exciting announcements. We want to let you guys know about some awesome patron activities we're going to be having on our Discord server in April. Everybody knows we have a Patreon. We've been talking about it for a while. We've had some live watches and we're going to have another live watch and we're also going to have our first live chat. These are all our Patreon activities. So first of all, for all of our $5 plus patrons, we're going to be having our next live watch on Friday, April 29th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern. We are going to be live watching the 1985 TV movie, The Secret of the Sword. This is the He-Man, She-Ra crossover TV movie event that is the origin of the original She-Ra TV show. It's kitschy. It's campy. It's real gay in a subtle 1980s kind of way that isn't really that subtle, but we love to laugh and make fun of it and compare it to today, which there's really no comparison. It makes us enjoy the day and time that we are in even more to look back and laugh and drink and all the fun things that we can do and we're together on our Discord. So that's Friday, April 29th. 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And then directly following that live watch, we will be having a live chat with all of our $10 plus patrons. We can talk about what we just saw. We can talk about anything we want. It's a total free for all. So if you are a $10 plus patron of ours as of Friday, April 29th, you can join us there. And it's gonna be real fun. We hope to have lots of new faces with us then because you guys, you are our queer fam and we love to hang out with you. And uh, patrons at every level are welcome in all of our Discord text chats. We have a ton of different text chats. We have a general chat. We have a fanfic chat. We have a not safe for work chat. We have a gamer corner. And we're open to suggestions for new uh, text chats at any point. Um, The gamer corner is a recent advent because people wanted it. So whatever the people want, the people shall have. You're our community and we adore you. So that's all coming up in April. And uh, we hope to see you there. Stay gay. Do crime. We love you. Mwah. And without further ado, here comes Roll With It. Hey, folks, and welcome to Hey Adora, your queer D&D She-Ra podcast. Woo-hoo! I am Force Captain Natalie, though. And I am Princess Jenny She-Her. And we are both super excited about this episode. Yeah, we are. We are. This week's episode is Roll With It. Roll With It was written by head writer Josie Campbell, storyboard by Jasmine Goggins, Angela Kim, and the Regent of Catrador, Mickey Quinn. It was directed by Jen Bennett. And it is the fourth episode of the second season of She-Ra and the Princess of Power. That's right. Arguably the most fun episode of the entire series. It really is just pure geek joy. Yeah, and like just silliness and little nuggets. Nuggets of fun trivia from different sources. It's an episode written by people who absolutely adore uh, D&D, who adore the genre of like the framing of pastiche. Definitely. Which is, I'm definitely going to talk about pastiche. Please do. And just in general, love anime. They love, this is like a love letter to nerd culture. Yes, very well put. And I have to say, as so I have zero background in D&D, have never played up until yesterday when we had our practice game 
for our upcoming D&D bonus app, which you guys are going to flip your little rebellion lids for. It's going to be so fun. But that was my first time ever being introduced to a game of D&D yesterday. So when yeah. I first saw this episode, the whole D&D thing went right over my head. I'm not embarrassed to admit it. I had no frame of reference. It didn't occur to me at all. Mm-hmm. Until after I had seen it a couple times, I was like, wait a minute. Especially with like Frost's character sheet. I was like, wait a minute. I think there's an external reference point here. But even <laughs> without knowing that, I right. still had a fantastic romp. It was. It was. So uh, you don't have to have, there's no prerequisites necessary to enjoy this episode. No, but. Of course it doesn't hurt. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's super fun. And I mean, that's the thing about postmodernism too. Like the fun yes. thing about postmodernism is you can read the text in multiple layers. Yes. Um, Jenny, you want to drop a really quick death of postmodernism? So I didn't actually prepare anything. So I'm just going to give a very user-friendly, accessible definition rather than go in real deep and reference any big thinkers. I'm just going to give you a very accessible definition of postmodernism and uh, semiotics in general. Semiotics is the study of signs and symbols and how we lay meaning upon them in a very basic way. I'm not talking about signs like, you know, secrets sacred signs that you find in a painting in a cave. I mean, like you look at a table and you have a word in your head that is table. And you know that we all know, you know that we all know that we know that the word table is that thing. And that thing has a use that we all sit around it and put food and books on it. And that's what we use it for. And that's what it is. That is what we mean. It's very basic when we talk about signs and signifiers. And that is the study of semiotics. And that is the basis of postmodernism basically is that we understand that there is no such thing as objective reality because even though we all know that we loosely agree that the word table means this object, we all come to understand that we can't possibly all agree in our own internal definitions of objects and symbols. We think we all agree, but we're really just projecting onto each other all of our own separate meanings. So that there is no such thing as an agreed upon shared reality because there's no conditions under which we can really all know that we're agreeing to the same terms. We all have our own little bubbles of reality that we think are objective, quote unquote, but there really is no such thing as objective reality because we are all processing reality through our own senses, our own eyes and ears and subconscious messaging. So we're all having our own internal experiences and it can be very unmooring, destabilizing and stressful when you first start to study it. People who study these things at the undergrad and graduate level can go through a lot of existential crises about it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I personally don't find it that stressful. I find it somewhat comforting because you understand that we're all in the same boat. Nobody's 100% right. Mm -hmm. You know, we're all just doing our thing and we're doing our best to, to float along, get along agree yep. with each other as best we can, but we can't ever really know for sure that we're all agreeing to the same concepts and signifiers. A absolutely. Which is an excellent kind of segue into um, uh, the text and the metatext. Um, yeah. So when I talk about metatextual, I mean the text, the understanding of the, um, the, the semiotics uh, that go into a text. So um, just as you can read particular text in one way or the other, when something is metatextual, it is, in, um, it is intentionally understood to be read in one way or another. Uh, this particular episode has a textual understanding, which is, you know, you run through the plot and you see, oh, cool. So, 
you know, they're trying to fight the horde and, you know, Adora's having her, you know, daily crisis and they, you know, all, they understand that they have to work together to all win in the end, which they do. Uh, but then there's the metatext. Spoilers, Matt. Math. Oh, shit. They all so win sorry. in the end? I'm so sorry. I wanted I'm to so wait sorry. and see if they were going to win in the end. I, I really sorry. <laughs> oh. I'm really sorry. Oh, no. Well, it's okay. Ah. I guess we'll all somehow manage to find some joy. <laughs> episode over. Yes, um, episode over. Sorry. Continue. But the metatextual part of this is that you are understanding that the story is told in multiple ways if you understand the semiotics that they are bringing in from multiple different places, which really kind of segues really lovely uh, into um, the concept of pastiche. So this episode is a pastiche, and Josie Campbell has actually done pastiche before in uh, the way that she melded um, the comedy of manners and the teen movie uh, yes. in Princess Perfect Prom. example. Uh, so pastiche is a work of visual art, literature, theater, or music, or architecture that imitates the style or character of a work of one or more artists. And unlike parody, it celebrates it. In this, we are using pastiche, cinematic understandings of pastiche, uh, in the different sections that each a member of the Princess Alliance is describing their plan. So we have the pastiche of the Magical Girl anime with Mermista. We have uh, the pastiche of uh, uh, Attack on Titan with Perfuma's uh, plant golem. We have the pastiche of the um, of Cowboy Bebop and Film Noir uh, with Glimmer. So, and we also have the pastiche of Dungeons and Dragons. So this is a really lovely metatextual, if you understand those symbols and you understand those uh, things that are coming into it, then you will understand this episode on a different level, not a deeper level. Because that's, you know, that's a loaded statement, but a different level. I think you could say that you understand it on a deeper level. What's so terrible about saying that? There's surface level, there's what's right on the surface, right, and then okay. there's other meanings that are on a, a libidinal level that are not right on the surface. And if you are not versed in those particular areas, you might not have access to that understanding. It doesn't mean that you're dumb. It just that's means true. that you don't have a background in that. Nothing. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, you don't have a reference to it. Yeah, like for example, I'm not familiar with the Cowboy Bebop and the and the Titans thing that you mentioned. <laughs> the Titans and the Cowboy Bebop. The Titans and the Cowboys. I'm not familiar with those, but yeah. clearly I can see that like these are different animation styles that are influenced from different traditions. Like that I can see, you know, and I can appreciate it, but yeah. I can't I, I I am not familiar with specific references and so I can't appreciate it on the same level that someone who could say for example like, right. "Oh, that's a nod to" this show, this episode from yeah. this genre in this year. Like, that's a specific reference that someone else might get, and that's fine. I actually love the nod to, because that distinguishes it from influence. The nod to is essentially right. using all of the framing, including the cinematography, the lighting, the mise-en-scene, the, like, everything about it, to honor it, instead right. of pulling influence from it and digesting it and putting it out right. as something. Um, for example, uh, Horde Prime is influenced by megachurches and, you know, like the big evil empire thing. Right. Glimmer's you could dissect all the influences yes. that go into each one yes. of these characters. Exactly. Glimmer's Dream is almost direct symbols uh, from Cowboy Bebop and from the genre of film noir, which we're going to talk about. 
So that is yes. pastiche. Professor Smartbrain Yay. Nugget in the beginning because we need to understand what we're dealing with before we go into this episode. Yes. To ha- enjoy maximum fun. Maximum fun and enjoyment. You need to- <laughs> juicy, juicy, multivalent text. You need to understand the text in order to have yes. fun. And, you know, we highly believe that this is a multivalent text. So Yeah, I mean, the whole show is, but it's especially- yeah, the entire show. It's especially apparent here, and they're just having so much fun with it. And that's like you said, it's a love letter to nerd culture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, hey, here's this fun thing we all like. Ha ha. Like, here's this other fun thing we all like. It's it's so intentional. Like you said, it's a nod to it. It's an homage. It's not just, oh, we're going to take all these little bits we like and make our own buffet-style meal out of all these little bits and pieces. It's like, here's, you know, here's a sushi-style tapas, and here's mm-hmm. a taco tapas, and, mm-hmm. you know... Here's yeah. a, you know, here's a dessert tapas and these are all the things we like and we're going to put them on the same rotating tray, but we're going to keep them distinct enough that they all retain their own flavor and it's very clear. I love that you're using tapas. I, I just had, I had tapas yesterday. Did you have tapas yesterday? With my, with my friends who I haven't seen in a while. That sounds so, delicious. Yeah. It's often much cheaper than everyone ordering a full meal. That's true. And you get more variety and who doesn't love variety? I love variety. Mm-hmm. So shall we get into this? Let's get into it. All right. So outside a horde outpost. Yup. So we have... We yep. have the best friend squad sneakily sneaking mm-hmm. around the outer edge of a turret attempting to break into this outpost. Yep. So um, we have... Uh, so most of the time in this episode, uh, when we go to kind of the battle sequences, we have Adora as She-Ra. We're going to distinguish between Adora and She-Ra in this. So... Yeah, so, this is an episode where it. I noticed that too, that it's more of a distinction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which makes sense considering, yeah. you know, what they're doing. Of course, of course. Uh, so She-Ra is trying to uh, get a plan together from the best friend squad. Yeah, the- she lets us know expositionally that we need to find mm-hmm. a way to recapture this outpost for the rebellion. And she is open to suggestions as to how to do that. Yep. And so Bo is, you know, Glimmer and Bo both mentioned their, here's their plans. And she brings up, and she brings up the first D&D nod, which is you have advantage in a sneak attack. Right. So right away, if you are familiar with the text, you understand that this is going to, this is a nod to Dungeons and Dragons. That's right. And I did not catch that before, but now that I have had my first D&D session, I am aware of that. Where we had advantage in a sneak attack. Yes, yes. <laughs> So there they are, and they both, of course, have their own thing that they're relying on. Glimmer says she'll teleport ahead and scout a path. Bo says he'll quietly shoot out the nearest turrets. And that brings us into our first weapons corner of the episode. Yes! It's an architectural weapons corner today (laughs) for turrets. Because I'm sure we've all heard the words turrets, but I'm not sure we all know what it means. I wasn't really sure that I knew what it meant. Jenny, I don't know what it means. So, real quick, from the Wikipedias, in architecture, a turret is a small tower that projects vertically from the wall of a building such as a medieval castle. Okay. Turrets were used to provide a projecting defensive position, allowing cover fire to the adjacent wall in the days of military fortification. And there's many subclassifications of turrets, such as, for example, in this context, a gun turret is a mounting platform from which weapons can be fired that affords protection, visibility, and ability to turn and aim. Mm. So here's a few examples of different kinds of turrets. Castle turret, gun turret, tank turret, Victorian turret, which the latter usually is not armed. It's just decorative. 
It's just decorative. I'm like, ooh, what are they going to shoot? Fancy things? I yeah. <laughs> so those are those, those are some basics for turrets. And so, of course, you see these on castles. It's like, you know, on those outer outer um, walls that are just defending walls, you always see a little, a little cast, like a little pointed castle point at the end, at the corner of each wall. Those are the turrets. And Absolutely. those are where you have your weapons cached often. And it's a good, it's a good point that you can shoot from and have a lot of cover from return fire because you're behind this big stone or brick type tower. Yay! Yay! That's so, awesome. Yes. There will be another architectural weapons corner coming later. Architectural so, weapons corner. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's a special it's a special day here at Handor. We got a lot of unusual stuff going on. We're learning a whole bunch of stuff yes. today. So Shira approves this basic bitch plan from the best friend squad and they they go to do it. Boom. But, uh-oh, Tiny Bo is blasted oh. off the edge of the turret by a turret blast. This is Bo's first time going down. But I had a question that, I mean, it doesn't matter because it can't be answered. Why doesn't Glimmer just teleport down and rescue him and bring him back up? Because obviously she hasn't used that much of her magic yet. Yeah, I don't know. But it wouldn't be fun. That's the answer. It wouldn't be fun. And it's also like a... So this is also our misdirect. For all we know, Bo's dead. Right, right. This is the first scene. Bo goes down. Oh no, Bo! And then she was like, he's dead. He's dead. Gasp, uh, gasp. But then, of course, we cut to uh, a really fucking fancy tent. It's a war it's, tent. Yeah, but it's like beautiful. There's like drapery and like vaguely vaginal shapes. Yeah, it's, and, a, like, it's a bright moon tent. I know, but it's still, it's beautiful. Though. It's beautiful. Good for them. Yes. Good for them. Yes. The tent architecture is They may great. be refugees, but they're still going to be in style. Exactly. So we have, uh, so we transition to our nearby rebellion tent, and this is definitely one of my favorite lines in the entire series. Tiny Bo's figure clatters to the table. Bo lifts his arms, and we have the next, uh, the next shot from above looking at him in this very stereotypical, like, uh, action movie uh, thing. He's got tears streaming out of his face. Both of his fists are up and he says, Tiny Boo, you will be avenged. <laughs> yes. And he does the slam on the table. I know. And nobody else reacts that much. Shira is very deadpan. She's like, well, that plan's out. Yep. But that sucked. Let's go again. Yep. Well, Bo is next to her, like having this massive moment with himself. And she's like, well, that won't work. And if you're familiar with D&D, we've, we have our kind of second nod to it where you see that they're literally sitting at a battle table uh, with a grid and all of Adora's stuff is behind the little like trifold thing, which is where the, you know, where the, the DM does their thing. Yeah. In the script to this episode, they refer to that as the strategy divider. Ooh, I th- I'm not sure if that's a... Anyway, so we have credits, credits, credits. We're going to win in the end or do we... Don't we'll want to spoil it. <laughs> All right. This is where I want to talk about D&D because I've been saying it a lot. And we okay. are very, we're very big at defining our terms here. Yes. D&D is Dungeons and Dragons. Dungeons and Dragons is on a very high level, a fantasy tabletop game, a role-playing game, or an RPG, or a TTRPG as a tabletop RPG because there are video game RPGs and all sorts oh, of stuff. Oh, true. That was originally designed by Gary Gygax and James, uh, excuse me, Gary Gygax and Dave Arnson. 
So it was first published in 1974 by TSR, which is Tactical Studies Rules, and it is now published by Wizards of the Coast since 1997. They changed a whole bunch of, you know. There's actually so much drama behind the actual business in the beginning of D&D, which is pretty wild. So, you know, if you want to get into that, you can. You know, at this point, it's it's been so absorbed in pop culture that there are D&D studies about, like, the history of it and everything. It's wild. Um, so this is derived from uh, miniature war games. Like, there was a whole kind of proto-RPG, TTRPG thing about war games. Um, kind of think of, think of Risk. Yeah, I mean, Risk. this, even coming from a background of having no background, it seems very obvious to me that this comes from they are trying to work out their battle strategy before going into battle. And so they have like a tabletop simulation of the actual conditions that they're going to be facing. Right, which is, you know, which is how it's kind of framed in this episode, which right. we've already seen. Um, so D&D is kind of, it's, there are many other type of systems with that within the tabletop RPG, but D&D's uh, publication, it's the first one. It is the seminal RPG. The very first one. The very first one. The one that one. defines the genre. It defines the genre. So, uh, you know, a tabletop game is a form of role-playing game, as I mentioned, where participants describe their character's actions through speech, and then participants determine the action of their characters based on their characterization and the actions based on the success or failure of a formal system. In D&D, it's you have a set of skills that you have that you're good at and you're not good at, and then you roll a dice against them. So it has that randomized elements to it where you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so it is more of a storytelling adventure. Um, there is a question as to whether or not it fulfills the actual genre of game itself, or whether it's kind of outside its own thing, because game is understood to have like, you know, rules and, and a final objective. And once that's over, it's done. But tabletop games can go on infinitely. Interesting. Yeah. So. That's right, because last night when we were doing our practice game, at a certain point we won the battle and I was like, okay, we're done. And everyone else was like, no, no. No, no, no. Done. We're not done. We're not done. Um, so because of the because of the system and the, because of the way that it is, it is uh, designed, people have the, it says, you know, I have my nice little uh, definition here. Within the rules, player have, players have freedoms to improvise. And the shape of their direction and outcome defines the game. So there are like multiple different aspects that go into the game never under like that's non-linear it's an incredibly non-linear adventure that is like the highest level description of dungeons and dragons um the original D, &D um kind of world it's a fantasy world a western fantasy world it is so heavily based on uh tolkien's world that they literally got sued in the beginning because they were using the words hobbit and ant and balrog um all of the races and classes are drawn from the lord of the rings halflings which is hobbits elves half elves dwarves orcs rangers it's all taken from lord of the rings <laughs> well so, it makes sense why they got sued yeah yeah, exactly. Other things about it real quickly. The crew and the cast are big, are big friggin', you know, D&D &D nerds. The crew Not, too? Yeah, they used to play. So one of the things is they did play, you know, writers did play D&D &D together. They had like a D&D &D crew. That's uh, awesome. Just a really quick aside from like a queer, a queer perspective. It is, you know, kind of anecdotally and also like even ND mentioned this. It is a place where a lot of queer uh, and trans people 
are really first able to kind of explore an identity that they can feel comfortable then embracing. Mm. Um, Fuck yeah. So, like, you can be whoever you want. Fuck yeah. D&D, wicked fucking queer. It's fun. Find a cool crew. Listen to some good, uh, listen to some good podcasts and listen to our podcast where we play as the Princess Alliance Yay! against the Horde. That's right. We're going to have a sick game for you in our next episode. It's so fun. Yes. It's so fun. Anyway, should we get into this episode? We went through some credits. Yeah. And now we're back. We see this opening shot that shows us where the rebellion camp is in in relation to the Horde outpost. It's like basically just on the other side of some rocks. Yep. <laughs> they're yep. within visual range of each other. But I guess, you know, they're as close as they can be without directly tussling. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we go back inside the rebel war tent. We've got the best friend squad sitting around, continuing to strategize the same little battle plan. Bo, very upset about the fact that he shouldn't be dead. He says, that turret came out of nowhere, <laughs> which we know now. We know about turrets. They don't move. Thanks for and telling then- us that, Jenny. I really appreciate your <laughs> weapons corners. No problem. I mean, you know, I figure if I don't know, there's got to be at least a few other people out there who are in that boat with me. I feel like that's a pretty solid assumption. Um, Adora gives us some more exposition about the whole battle situation. She says, the pass is the only way in or out of this region. According to the reports, the Horde seized it while we were busy defending Bright Moon, so it's crucial that we get it back. And then Bo starts to really lay into his running gag for the episode (laughs) of, you know, why does it mean I have to die? And after I made these for you. I know. I love that Bo hand-painted these. Yes, yes. That's so cute. It's, of course, he's the maker. He makes things that need to be made. Yeah. Yeah, and you obviously need your tabletop battle Figures. You need your war your your war table battle figures. Yeah, which is like gonna plan your battle on a table. <laughs> but so, you know, we get so we have a, a, a lot of fun exposition set up in this first scene. Adora gives us this sort of emotional exposition of what's mm-hmm. gonna be gripping her throughout the episode when she says our plans always fall apart. It would be impressive if it wasn't so terrifying. So and then Glimmer says, but we have gotten really good at improvising though. Right? So Glimmer feels okay about that. And Adora absolutely does not feel okay about that. She's super, super serious and wants them to yeah. take everything into account that the Horde could possibly throw at them, including surprise attacks. Yep. So I have a note here. I I feel a real Dad Dora energy in the room right now. Ah, uh, like, Dad Dora. Like, and that could be very much a gayest moment. Like, Here's here's dad trying to prepare the family to beat that other family at the annual neighborhood capture the flag game. And the it. other family won last year and perhaps wins every year. And our dad has just like been preparing all year because the other dad has been rubbing our dad's face in it every day, even though it's supposed to be like a fun recreational family event. So now our dad is just like super, super serious. And we're all sitting around like trying to prepare for this fun recreational event. And our dad this. just won't let us have fun. Dad Dora's like, guys, you have to take it seriously. If we prepared for anything, anything the Mitchells could throw at us. Are we prepared? Always prepare. Yeah. And then we move on to Bo telling us that we're breaking Tiny Bo's heart, (laughs) even though he doesn't explain why. And we have the funny little shtick where Glimmer's like, he's smiling. And Bo says, through his pain, Glimmer, through his pain. And that's when Adora gets back into being like, guys, this is serious. I twitch, I twitch. And now I roll it onto you, Mef. And this is where I have my first gayest moment. So I, so we have the line from Adora, very serious business. 
guys, this pass is, is important. The Horde's not going to give it out without give it up without a fight. It's obviously going to be guarded by their very best and brightest. We have Adora's eye twitching at very best and brightest. Yes. Definitely being like, ooh, Catra. She's definitely not thinking of Scorpia. <laughs> definitely not thinking of Scorpia. When definitely her eye thinking, is twitching. <laughs> definitely thinking about stupid, sexy Catra. Yeah, stupid, sexy Catra makes Adora's eye twitch. So I have that as my first gay assignment. That is a very gay moment. And then another gay, pretty gay moment when we transition to Scorpia and I have in all caps, hello, you beautiful marshmallow of muscle. Oh, Scorpia. And then I really want to read Scorpia's opening lines. Please do. So we first see Scorpia enthusiastically standing atop the parapet, which we will define shortly, yelling instructions at random to the Horde troops. Move those big weapony things! Flap those banners! Uh, keep doing whatever it is you're doing, guy I'm pointing at! Now do a different thing! And look sharp! Force captain's orders! So, you know, it, it's almost just like the kind of text that you put in, like when you're designing a website, and there's a Latin word that I can't quite remember right now. Lorem like, ipsum. Yeah, the text you put in when you don't know what the words are going to be, but you know there have to be words. Yeah. I feel like that's what Scorpia's doing right now. She's like, words I should be saying when I'm in charge of a thing. <laughs> I love that, like, you know, throughout the first season, it's implied that Scorpia went to force captain training. But this is telling right. us that she didn't absorb a damn thing at right. first captain I mean, training. Just because she was there doesn't necessarily mean that she aced it. Right, right. I feel like she got like the like the legacy pass on this one. Yeah, I think you're right. And so the horde troops are on the ground, frantically running around, panting, chaotically attempting to comply with all of Scorpia's conflicting orders. <laughs> and it's love- just it's a great opening to a scene just to set the tone of how things are going. You know, we have we have what the what the rebellion is imagining is happening behind mm-hmm. the scenes at yep. the Horde Outpost. Now, now we cut to what is actually happening. Yep, and I, that's a kind of a running trope throughout the entire episode too. Is we have the rebellion, both the rebellion and the Horde, being like they're so tough, they're so much better than us, and they're both fucking messes. Right, and this is a great example of uh, semiotics. It is a great example of semiotics. How you interpolate, how you interpret, and assign meaning to objects and you assume that everyone else does also in the same mm-hmm. way that you do, but they don't. Mm-hmm. Also, I love the word interpolate. I know it's sexy. It's a good one. It's a sexy word. Oh, I love it. I love portmanteaus. I know. And you know who else we have in this episode who we adore? I think I do. Is it Lonnie? It's Lonnie and Kyle and Rahelio, all Aww. three of them, especially Lonnie, but we have some great, Kyle, Lonnie, Rogelio screen time in this episode. We do. Oh, we love Horde kids here at Hayes. And actually, this is a perfect, I have a bullet right here. This is where I, I have a little note that I feel like the three of them deserve their own best friend trio designation. We've got the best friend squad. We've got the super pal trio. Mm-hmm. Lonnie, Kyle, and Rogelio deserve their own designation. So I have taken the liberty of coming up with a few possibilities. Okay. See if you like any of them. Okay. We've got the shenanery trifecta. We've got the badass buddy brigade. And the last one I think might pique your interest. We've got the powerhouse polycule. Oh, I do like that one. Because I thought this might also be a good opportunity to talk about how ND made it canon that the three of them are a polycule. I love this. Um, And of course, this is, you know, one of those extra textual debates Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it was in a tweet 
like many of Endy's extra textual canonizing tweets Mm -hmm. we have come across. This is from May 20th, 2020. This is in response to a tweet that was deleted and I didn't see it. But Endy wrote, yeah, they're a thing. In my head, Lonnie's a part of it, though. So I'm assuming that was someone saying, hey, are Kyle and Rahelio a couple? Because there's mm-hmm. plenty of hints dropped throughout the series yeah. that suggest that Kyle and Rahelio are a couple. Yeah. Um, I just feel like Lonnie is positioned throughout the show as a very strong, queer female character. And you're I'm not trying to engage in bisexual erasure. I just feel like she's never given any opportunity to have any romantic pairing of any kind. And I would just love to see her have an uncomplicated queer lady relationship at some point. I feel like she deserves it. I feel like she's earned it. I feel like that's what's in her heart, or at least that's what's in my heart for her. Jenny's head. And I don't think I'm alone. No, Jenny, Jenny, Jenny just wants Lonnie to settle down with a, with me, ideally with with you. Yeah, sure. Sure. And that's fair. I'm just jealous. Yeah, that's fair. You know, what is, what does Kyle have that I don't have? Come on. That's true. But they, they've gone through so much together. They're a little family. Well, maybe Lonnie likes to yeet people. And, That's true. And Kyle is <laughs> imminently yeetable. And I'm not sure of your, your yeetability. That's true. You know. Well, obviously, there is room for a million interpretations. And I think that's by design. But hey, you know, fuck yeah, poly representation, though. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's you know, that's the thing I come back to that's the most important thing. Yeah. Is healthy, positive representations of polyamory are a very good thing. We're all about that. But she's such a supportive friend, soldier, co-worker, however you want to call her relationship to Scorpia. She never belittles Scorpia. She never talks down to her. She never rags on her. She never says, I can't believe you're in charge. I should be in charge. She's very supportive of Scorpia. I mean, she's snarky, but she's not a jerk. She's not even that snarky. She's just like inwardly snarky, not even really to Scorpia's face. Well, I mean, we have this line here. Scorpia, happy disbelief. Catcha left me in charge. Can you believe it? And Lonnie's like, nope, I really can't. But that's like bare bones. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like she's like a little snarky, but she is. She's a really good like number two, right? Like, yes, she's exactly. an excellent number two. Exactly. <laughs> but then also, Scorpia takes that to mean I know me neither. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then you know what she can't believe is that Catra left her in charge. I know, and that transitions over to Scorpia saying she must really trust me. Uh huh. I can't let her down. And then with more vocab words that she knows, she might not know what they mean, but we're going to teach her. She yells, Kyle, man the parapet. Ooh. ooh. And Kyle. Yes. Confidently confused. I love that that was how they described it in the script, because I agree that is exactly Uh the tone that he's capturing right now. Kyle, confidently confused. I don't know what those are. I love that. Scorpia. Then find out. And he runs away panting. At a brisk pace, while we all explain to everyone who's still here the definition of parapet for our second architectural weapons corner. Hooray! So basically, it's a retaining wall. (laughs) It's what they're all standing on (laughs) throughout the horde parts of this episode. Like, at the top of the wall, it's not just a wall. There's like a walkway at the top of the wall. Mm -hmm. And there's, you know, it's like a wall that has width in addition to height. So there's space. So I will read you again the Wikipedia definition. A parapet is a barrier that is an extension of the wall at the edge of a roof, terrace, balcony, walkway, or other structure. The word comes from the Italian parapetto. So there's two root words, parare, which means to cover, defend, and petto, which means chest or breast. 
So, again, like, makes sense. Okay. Parapets were originally used to defend buildings from military attack. But today, they are primarily used as guardrails to conceal rooftop equipment, reduce wind loads on the roof, and prevent the spread of fires. Oh. So many uses beyond the military pale. Ooh, I love this. And they actually even were referenced all the way back in the Bible. The Bibbles, uh, you say? The Bibbles in, in the Hebrew and Christian Bibbles, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 22.8. So Deuteronomy is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. So it's like, we've gotten through Genesis, Exodus, we've made the world, we've escaped the Egyptians. All the big picture stuff is done. Now we're like giving all these little fine tuning instructions, like how to build your house, how to plant your crops, how to do everything exactly in the correct biblical way. So this is a direct quote from the Bibles. This is Deuteronomy 22.8, in English at least. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Guilt of bloodshed is a sick Construction safety. Yeah. Construction safety. But I like that it's referred to as guilt of bloodshed. I know, right? (laughs) Parapets may be plain, embattled, perforated, or paneled, which are not necessarily mutually exclusive terms. Hmm. I like all those hard Bs and Ps. It's a really good microphone test. What kind of parapet is this one? This one is a parapet fortification. Known as a breastwork when temporary. So if this was a temporary structure... It would be a breastwork, which is a wall of stone, wood, or earth on the outer edge of a defensive wall or trench, which shelters the defenders. I love it. In medieval, yeah, that's it. In medieval castles, they were often crenellated. Oh, okay. In in later artillery forts, parapets tended to be higher and thicker. They could be provided with embrasures for the fort's guns to fire through and a banquette or fire step so that defending infantry could shoot over the top. The top of the parapet often slopes towards the enemy to enable defenders to shoot downwards. This incline is called the superior talus. These are suck some fucking sick names. I know. So this really, you know, especially for someone like me who does not have military strategy background or brain in any way, it's really painting a picture of all of these military advantages that the Horde has with this outpost geographically and architecturally, as well as just, like, what guns do you have and what guns do we have? No, I love this. This is dope. So that's it. Thank you, Jenny. You're very welcome. But we have Kyle trying to figure out what they are. Jenny knows, but, you know, Jenny can't talk to Kyle. So Kyle has now run off, and Scorpio leans back against the very parapet that she doesn't know what it is and moons over Catra. And here's another great gayest moment, which I'm sure you also have, Mef, so do you want to take it? Oh, you can have it. I had the last one. Okay. Scorpia, you're in charge of the fortress, she said. Even you can't mess this up, she said. Even me, with the huge sparkly anime eyes. She's thinking about me. Should I get her a thank you gift? What's her favorite color? Kyle, what are you doing? And he's manning the parapets. Find out Catra's favorite color. (gasps) So, okay. I I have a couple of ideas, right? Yes. So like red, right? It looks good on her. She wears it all the time. But I, the idea that I have here is possibly the bluest blue of Adora's stupid eyes. Oh, that's a good guess. Thanks. I think you're right. Yeah. She wouldn't admit it. No. It st- but it would be in her heart. Stupid, sexy Adora. <laughs> stupid, sexy blue eyes. Stupid, sexy blue eyes. Yes. But I do agree that in terms of, like, her color, what looks good on her, it's definitely red. Yeah. 
So that's a real fun gayest moment. And then Scorpia is, you know, real juiced up now on her own excitement about uh, the sparkage that she is feeling with uh, Catra based on Catra's newfound trust in her, leaving her in charge of this outpost. She wraps her arms around Lonnie and Rahelio in an almost chokehold and continues to talk to them about Catra, her dream girl, her raison d'etre. There's like another gayest moment immediately on the heels of the first. This is this is an incredibly gay moment. So Scorpia is continuing on trying to figure out what Catra likes. Uh, it is like, you guys know Catra. What was she like? It needs to say something. It needs to be something that says uh, thank you. But also we are soulmates tied together by the beautiful threads of fate. <laughs> As she squeezes the life out of her friends until their eyes are popping out. She's like so overexcited. She doesn't even realize she's crushing them to death. And Lonnie's like, uh, okay, let's, yeah. can we just talk about less time talking about Catra and more time talking about our defenses? Like, can we just fucking do our job, please? Yep. And Scorpia just like stares at her. Yeah. Huh? With this blank, moony eyed grin, this beautiful, like, Scorpia, even when she's not talking, delivers the perfect comedy gold. These long stretches of pause punctuated only by blinking. And Lonnie finally says, the reason we're here <laughs> to like snap her out of it. And then Scorpio laughs and pats Lonnie on the back so hard she's thrown into the opposite wall. <laughs> and Scorpio has another great comedy line. Oh, you don't need to remind me. My wildcat is counting on me and I won't let her down. And then, you know, she she does the big majestic thing mm-hmm. on the wrong side of the pass. Yeah. For Catra, I will defend this pass with my very life. And, of course, and it's the wrong pass. It's the wrong side. She puts her foot up on it. She's pointing out over in this majestic pose, but it's the wrong one. And again, Lonnie, very generous right now. Mm-hmm. She could have shamed Scorpia very easily and been like, dude, you're an idiot. Right. But she doesn't She doesn't do that. She just does the cough thing. Right. She's like, ugh, wrong pass. Yep. And that's awesome. She gives Scorpia a chance to, like, figure it out and recover on her own. Yep. Yeah. Which she does. Which she does. She runs the other side of the wall. Yes, this is the pass. I will defend with my very life. No reason to worry at all. So then we go back to a do- we go back to the rebel camp. And we have a great um, scene change shot. We have mm-hmm. the overhead shot of the actual horde outpost. Yep. And then it transitions into... An identical view of the game board showing the exact same spot on the game board that we were just looking at in like the real life version of it. I love it. Yeah. Once again, showing like the the semiotic conversation. Yes. So Adora's like, okay, that one won't that last one won't work. Let's try a different one. So um that was Adora's plan, right? The first one we saw. That was I mean, that was the beginning of Adora's plan. Right. Yes. So now we're going into Glimmer's plan. Yes, Glimmer grabs the strategist divider. Tells her she's going about this all wrong. We're not going to win by sneaking. We got to take the action to them. And... (laughs) And I am not as well versed in all the actual genres that are influencing Glimmer's world, but I just wrote a two-tone world of punk rock magenta pink on black. I love it. I love it. So this is my next Professor Smart Brain moment because this is something that I am pretty decently versed in. Yes, let's hear it. Glimmer, Professor Smart Brain mega moment here. So this is Glimmer's plan. Glimmer's plan, once again, is a pastiche and it is a pastiche of a pastiche. Nice. So the first kind of um, 
direct influence on this is the 1998 Japanese neo-noir sci-fi anime Cowboy Bebop. So Cowboy Bebop ran for 26 episodes or six sessions in four or five episodes each. That's set in the year 2770 and follows the lives of a traveling bounty hunter crew aboard a spaceship, the Bebop. It incorporates a wide variety of genres. So Cowboy Bebop within itself is an incredibly postmodern text. And it draws from most heavily from science fiction, Western, and noir films. So its most prominent themes are, remember this, kids, existential ennui, loneliness, and the ability to escape one's past. Nice. So Glimmer's look, the hair. The, Which is fabulous. The hair, kind of the open, high-collar, uh, open jacket with the, the pop collar. And very, very specifically, the initial shot, which is kind of like one of those, like, leaning, like... The gay leaning. The gay leaning with a leg up. up uh, with a toothpick in her mouth. Yes, um, I made note of that, too. And the fact that her face is in shadow. Um, is a direct nod to the protagonist of Cowboy Bebop, whose name is Spike. Yeah, that's right. I feel like that toothpick in the mouth thing is a, not, is, is a very broad cultural type of like male which i would absolutely agree with if it wasn't for the fact that her hair is designed to be look exactly like his this is an iconic shot of him and he always has a cigarette hanging out of his mouth okay that is what is being referenced because it is being referenced in the original texts so what Got i'm it. saying nested like nested postmodern like nested meta meta this is a mm -hmm. meta meta this is like, these are direct shots from that particular archetype of the antihero, which Spike is. Also, Got it. Spike is like the, apparently it's the ultimate antihero name, right? It's not a bad choice. It's not a bad choice. Um, who is referencing that particular archetype, which Glimmer is then referencing that particular character and that particular archetype using visual semiotics. <laughs> it's so nested. It's so meta. Um, so this is our Cowboy Bebop moment. Cowboy nice. Bebop, as I've mentioned before, is a neo-noir, which brings us, and that's what this is as well. So while this is, this is, you know, the Cowboy Bebop moment, it is also drawing for a lot of, you know, symbolism from a couple of other places. Uh, the way that it is kind of in two shade, everything is kind of like shaded on the face, you know, when you see like yeah, yeah. in half shadow, high contrast, mm -hmm, that particular mm -hmm. look. It comes from a stylistic, uh, a particular style that started in the 1940s and 50s post-war in Hollywood called the film noir. So film noir and then neo-noir and all of these things that are derived from film noir uh, is a cinematic term used to primarily describe stylish Hollywood 1950s and 60s or 40s and 50s crime dramas particularly those that emphasize cynical attitudes and motivations. And there is, once again, that whole kind of cool, detached, anti-hero figure. Yes. The 1940s and 50s are generally regarded as the classical period of film noir. So film noir in this era is associated with a low-key black and white visual style that has its roots in, you'll guessed it, German expressionist cinematography. Remember we really? talked about yes. Remember we talked about German expressionism. Wow. Of course I do. Look at the angles and the lighting in this. It is very reminiscent of film noir, which takes it's, it's highly stylized. It's highly stylized, and it also takes a lot. If you can see this from very similar kind of angles and shadows from the D cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which we took a lot of influence from in Promise. 
But those were very overstated and, you know, non-realistic. And this is just reductive in terms of color palette. It's reductive in terms of color palette and angles. Look at the angles in this. Yeah, but I'm not saying it's not, it's not so over, it, you know, it's not like um, angles that are, I mean, obviously it's stylized, but it's, I think it's a more subtle version of that. Well, that's why it's an it's influence. It's a much more subtle right? version. Ger yeah, German yeah. expressionist cinematography, and I'm drawing yeah, on yeah. a particular a particular uh, text. Of yeah, it. and I, I'm not familiar with the Doctor of Caligari, so I can't speak yeah. to that directly. Yeah. So uh, um, it ha but it has but its, its roots in it. It's a very yep. very cool very cool path you have drawn. Thank you. Very cool. Thank you. Very cool. And I just love that this is how she sees herself. Yeah. Like you you know like she sees herself. It's it's this very. On the one hand, it's like this very pink world, but she sees herself as the toughest and butchest thing mm -hmm. yeah. in this very pink world, Yep. you know? And I, I think that this also qualifies as a gayest moment. Oh, yeah, I can see that. How Glimmer sees herself in this world. You know, like, she's not, like, the ultimate butch character, but she's not, you know, like, a high femme pearls and heels type either. She wants to be, you know, the punk badass. Which we're, and so yeah. she kind of needs everyone to be a little like more femmy than she is in order to posit herself as the most butch thing in this pink world, which as we will see later, her version of Katra is another super gay moment that like that's how she sees Katra, but this also like this is how she that's how she has to see Katra to make herself this version of herself in relation to Catra. And these also, what you're mentioning, which is a fantastic little kind of nod into where I'm going with the type of protagonist that a film noir and the type of antagonist, which is a femme fatale, right. uh, goes into. That's true. These are very particular um, uh, archetypes within the genre. So That's the genre true. of film noir, the protagonist, um, some really big ones that we know of, uh, The Big Sleep, uh, Humphrey Bogart, is the dude that pretty much made the, like, cool, snarky, like, you know, that sort of confidence. Um, the Big Heat, the setup, one that our listeners have may be familiar with, I know, Jenny, you are, is Bound. Oh, you know I am? Yeah. Bound is a, a, a film noir pastiche about two, uh, two queer women that run a heist on the mob. It's really sexy. But it has, so the, the protagonist in a film noir is usually this, like, you know, anti-hero type who, you know, is gritty, does what they can to get the job done. So we're going to pause this here because we're, when we jump back into Glimmer's thing, which we're going to be knocked out of very soon, we are going to see another very important uh, archetype and part of the, um, uh, the genre. Catcher being the... Catra being the femme fatale, obviously, is, is the other part of that. Is the other that part genre. of the genre. So we're going to go into that in a minute. Right. All right. And also my other note, having no background in any of these, these real cultural influences, I wrote about Glimmer. She's got her own Hey Ladies gay smirk mm -hmm. complete with gleam in the eye. That was part of the gayest moment of how she sees herself. Oh, uh, yes. And I do have a couple of other things. Um, the, the baddies, the, the yet unnamed. How she sees everyone else. The yet unnamed yeah. trio of Kyle, Rogelio, and Lonnie. Um, yes. Kyle is a really sick pompadour, v-neck, leather jacket, yes. and wallet chain. Kyle looks like your stereotypical bad boy greaser. Um, His pompadour is huge. It's incredible. I love it. Um, Rogelio is wearing Scorpius armor. <laughs> Oh, I didn't notice that. And Lonnie is probably the hottest that we will ever see Lonnie. Um, I mean, if you think eye patches are hot, which 
Uh, Glimmer definitely does. I definitely do. Um, so Lonnie's eye patch and turtleneck look is very Nick Fury, Agent of Shields, right? Like old school Nick Fury. Um, oh, and yeah. also like the reboot Nick Fury. Um, yeah. Uh, and she's wearing a waist cincher with it, like a very small, like laced, like um, laced belt. And her hair is down and. Yeah, it all works. Feels. It all works. Feels. Hey, Lonnie. Hey, Lonnie. So, oh, and Glimmer has jumpsuit and thigh-high boots and fingerless gloves. Like, Glimmer looks awesome. She just sees herself as, like, the coolest motherfucker ever. Yeah. Very cool plan based on reality. (laughs) Totally. Because she can, you know, backflip and frontflip and boom and punch and and teleport. And and she ran out of teleports, like, 12 teleports on ago. And that's fun. Bo reminds her that she ran out of teleports, so she lands on him, and Tiny Bo goes down again. No, Tiny Bo. So that's Bo. that's our. I'm. I don't know if we're keeping track, but that's what is that our second time that Tiny Bo goes down? Yep, that's number two for Tiny Bo. Yes, and then back in the tent, Adora reestablishes the fact that they need a plan that's based on reality, and Glimmer jokingly says yes. And in that moment, I really would land on Bo. Mm-hmm. So then we go out of that scene. Adora takes back the strategy divider. And continues planning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, okay, so Glimmer would teleport Bo, teleport him to the turret's blind spot. Bo will they try to be serious again for a minute. And then a giant Mermista appears. And then there's a seamless transition of the shot from giant Mermista rolling up on the imagined scene to actual Mermista walking into the actual tent saying, hey, why are you playing with dolls? Which is another funny nod to dolls versus action figures. Right, right. And Adora agitated saying, we're not playing with dolls. Yep. Bo is like, they're war table battle figures. Yeah, I don't have one for you. And, you know, Mermista wants in on the game. Mm-hmm. She switched wash duty with Perfuma. Bo doesn't have a figure for her. She's fine with being Shira. Adora's not fine with her being She-Ra. Glimmer gets annoyed, just grabs her and teleports her out of the tent. Bye. I love that. Rude. I love that. And... Very fun. Very fun. And then we have like a 15 second blip over to the Horde outpost that's 50 feet away. Mm -hmm. I wrote, Lonnie gets a Google alert on her Horde tablet. (laughs) She has a Google Google alert set up for princess proximity. Yep. And boom, we have one. Uh, and she says to one of the soldiers, alert force Captain Scorpia, we've got a princess problem. And then we blip right back over to the rebel tent. And we get back into Glimmer's plan. Because mm-hmm. Adora says she's still not taking the biggest factor into account. <sighs> Catra! Like, damn, Adora. Catra, Catra, Catra! Catra, Catra, Catra! She's behind every horde plan. She led the attack on Brighton. She's devious. And Glimmer is like, I already thought of that. Oh, she did. <laughs> and of course, so now we go back to Meph's Professor Smartbrain moment, and we talk more about film noir. Yes, and this is another gayest moment for Glimmer, because come on. Oh, yeah. So Glimmer imagines Catra in this high ass. Basically, she sees Catra as Jessica Rabbit. Yeah, she sees Catra as a uh, hard femme, right? Like, yep. So... Boom, we cut to Catra, you know, and she shows up once again in half shadow, walks in, sleeveless slink dress, fur stole, single pierced ear, the ears pierced multiple times. Uh, The lines on Catra's mask are softer. She 
She has a slit up the side so you can see her leg and is wearing kitten heels, which I think is hilarious that they put her in kitten heels. And the cat has a friggin' eye patch. She's holding a cat like a James Bond villain, right? Yes. So, Catra is a femme fatale. So the femme fatale is the stock character of a mysterious, beautiful, and seductive woman who charms and ensnares, and a lot of the times it's lovers, often leading them into compromising deadly traps. She is absolutely dressed as a femme fatale. Femme fatales are both show up in film noirs, as I mentioned before, and as antagonists in James Bond films. Why do I keep bringing up James Bond, you ask? Catra explicitly references and quotes James Bond. So the setup here is Glimmer. Do you expect us to sit here? Glimmer and Catra says, no, princess. I expect you to die. And of course, the then like, no, I expect you to die. So that comes from uh, the film Goldfinger, uh-huh. uh, which is the first James Bond movie. Um, by the way, the name of the... Uh, <laughs> One of the villains who became, who, you know, spoiler alert, does not, you know, stops being a villain. Uh, her name is Pussy Galore, by the way. Just to let oh, everybody know. I've heard of that, but only from Rent. Yeah, yeah. So she's <laughs> Pussy Galore, and she's surrounded by her um, air crew of all-female pilots. It, she is coded to be queer uh, until James Bond saves her with his magical penis of non-queerness. It's kind of gross, but pl- I know. But Pussy Galore. But that's a really cool character, but though. Pussy Galore is awesome because uh, she gets Pussy Galore. Um, Fuck yeah. So this quote comes from a very uh, a very kind of reference scene, once again, a metatextual scene, where James Bond, and it's actually in um, another postmodern metatextual uh, film, uh, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, um, which within itself references another film called uh, In Like Flint and The Man Called Flint, which are parodies from the 1960s. I am digressing because I know a lot about these genres. So in this scene, James Bond is tied to a table. The impending laser of doom is creeping up the table towards his groin. I knew you were going to say that. Miss Bond, James Bond says to Goldfinger, who's the bad guy here, do you expect me to talk? And Goldfinger says in a great blind delivery, no, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. Tight. So, referencing James Bond in a film noir reference, which contains a reference to Cowboy Bebop, with, which within itself is uh, referencing film noir tropes. This is meta upon meta upon meta. This is just a Russian nesting doll. It's a nesting doll of meta. Tasty. Yeah, so uh, some film noirs if you want to watch. Laura's a really cool one. It's about a detective who falls in love with a woman that is presumed to be dead. Uh, and while he's doing the um, investigation, The Big Sleep is a classic. Um, uh, Bound is a great neo-noir, has really super hot um, lady sex. Um, if you want to watch a James Bond movie, that's an old one. Watch Goldfinger. Uh, content warning, it's misogynist as shit. Yeah, I mean, the whole femme fatale thing, it's like, you know, women can only be powerful characters if they use their feminine wiles as their power. Right, right. And and then there's also the conversation of the femme fatale, like, is it, you know, but it is also a woman that has power, but it's a woman that has power that has to be, you know, taken away. There's an entire conversation about the femme fatale. Yeah, so, So, you know, obviously this is a genre from the 1940s and 50s. Right. It's not woke. It's not, it's not, it's not great, folks, but, um... You know, there is something to be said about it, and... uh, It's an influence. It's a cultural influence. 
So we get towards the end of Glimmer's scene. Uh, Glimmer is narrating the scene. Catra has a bomb. Glimmer is her greatest enemy. And Shira is standing in the corner looking so embarrassed. And that's like the best part is Shira's reactions. She's like, you see Catra like this? This is how you see Catra. Yeah, I love this. And then suddenly Perfuma comes out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. declares, I cast Flytrap on Catra. And then you see the next the next uh, scene or shot is from the point of view of the flytrap. Mm-hmm. Goes for Catra. She darts out of the way. And then each person just continues to dart out of the way until it gets to Bo, who does not dart out of the way. And he goes down again. So that's Tiny Bo's number three. Yep. And, you know, everyone else darted out of the way. So. Yeah. I don't know. He's got no one else to blame. Yeah. He's just rolling crap in this game. He's like, yeah, his yeah. rolls are terrible. What are you going to do? So then we flip back to reality, back to the tent. Back to the tent. And now Frostopper, Mr. and Perfuma have all arrived and want to join the game. <laughs> it's not actually a game, but it totally is a game. Yeah, it's it's a very serious planning session, but it's yes. a game. Yes, but we, Adora says, we're in the middle of a very serious planning session. Perfuma says, we have lots of ideas for plans. Perfuma <laughs> uh, says, aren't you on watch right now? Ed, but like, seriously, no one is moving. But like, like, yeah, but Adora caves in, agrees they can join only if they're super serious. Like, again, more of Dad Dora, like, okay, mm-hmm. kids, I'm going to help you. I'm going to let you help only if you're really serious about beating the Mitchells this year, because we can't can't just stick around like last year and have fun. Beating, you know, beating the Mitchells. I love that you yeah, named I, them the Mitchells. <laughs> well, you know, it's like whatever. The family, the family next door, that their other dad is just yeah. a real dick to our dad. Right. Yeah. He takes the game too seriously and makes our dad take the game too seriously, and we can't have fun now. And it's just going to be too serious when we're supposed to be having fun. I love this so much. I love this. So narrative. they agree that they're going to be serious, but are they really? So now we have a cacophony of voices all happening at the uh-huh. same time. Including uh-huh. Bo saying, what does that fly trap normally eat? Frost is saying, I have amazing ideas, starting with, we punch them. I mean, I like that idea. I mean, of course. And Remista saying, basically, who wants to order a pizza? Right. Which is like a time-honored tradition in D&D. You of eat course. You pizza. You drink your, your non-alcoholic beers. Right. That's what I do. Of course. My next note is, Adora's face equal opposite of Gay Smirk. I took a little screenshot so I could try to describe this because it's like it really is. It's like her gay smirk turned upside down. She's kind of woebegone. Like she has lost control of the situation. Her little I love that. Like her little tiny smirk going up. But if you just flip it, so it's kind of just going down like, oh, like she's just I'm not going to get anywhere with this with these guys. Yeah. Reverse reverse gay gay smirk. And that and then we flip back to the Horde outpost. So, and then we have the Horde Outpost and Scorpius talking to a spy bot like it's Alexa or Siri. Oh my god, but it really is very cute. It's like a tiny, it, tiny it version is. of the regular Horde bots. Mm-hmm. A little handheld so little version. I know. And she really, she kind of... <laughs> Scorpio just shows her whole fucking hand here. I, I need you to spy on the princesses so we can stop them and impress Catra so much she'll admit we're best friends. Or, at the very least, we have a bond that can never be broken. Gayest moment. Yep. And Lonnie and Rahelio are just standing there looking at each other, and they are both so over this. They're like, it's not turned on. And that's not how it works. And <laughs> another classic trope. Oh, yeah, good. Oh, I was testing you. I knew yeah. that. And, and you, and you pass. So kudos. kudos. Yeah, yeah, and I have another great screenshot of a silent beat of Lonnie and Rahelio just sharing a look. Uh-huh. Where they're just looking at each other, and they're both just like, dude. 
Like, are we, and he, are we going to do anything or are we just going to let this go? I, I I think they're just like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's see what happens. Yeah. And this is Scorpio's first instance of absolutely not knowing how to spy yep. whatsoever. So let's go Where spy. She, let's go spy. All right, dude. Yeah. So Lonnie helpfully clears her throat to remind Scorpio that she never actually turned on the spy bot. So she hands her the remote, turns it on. And then the little spy bot comes to life. It beeps in an unusually endearing way, I think. And it looks up at Scorpio with its little red eye hole. And Scorpio melts. It's so cute. Over this adorable baby spy bot. Aren't you the cutest little fella? I love it. Look at you with your little legs and your antenna. I love it. And then, you know, Lonnie. (laughs) Spying. Yes, that is the thing that we are doing. Mm-hmm. And Scorpia fumbles with the remote, and I just have, again, make things accessible for Scorpia. I know. It's painful. Yeah, it bums me out. Like, why would you even think that this is the person who should work the tiny-ass remote? Yeah, make a big fucking remote for Scorpia so she can do it. Or let or her do- delegate. Yeah. that's She's the force captain. She doesn't have to do everything herself. Yeah. Which is I mean, what ends up happening. But we have to have some right. physical comedy first with pincers. Right. Yes. Second test. There we go. Do you want me to drive the spy bot? Yes, please. Yes, please. That's a great pose for Scorpia. She's, yep. again, not embarrassed. Yeah. No hemming and hawing. She just bows right over. Yes, please. Take this. Take this stupid thing from me. And so then we go back to, we go back to battle table. Which we see. They've finally gotten set up for gaming again, which we know can take a while. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's true. And so Bo has, okay, everybody has a figure, except for Perfuma, who's using her plant, and Mermista, who has her own Sira action figure. She's a giant figurine of herself. Um, and and Bo is like, who has that for some reason? Mermista, you know, snarks back, says the guy with the bag of dolls. I love that she has her own action figure, and I think Seahawk made it for her. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. I mean, who else? Yeah, exactly. Right? He's like, I made a, f- <laughs> my dear and love, I made it a doll of you. This is a model of my love for you or something goofy like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Adora tries to start doing a plan and Bo's like, nope, I'm done. Yep. I've died so many times. We're doing my plan and there'll be no deaths, no dying, just heroic good time. And vintage 80s music from the original show. So here we are in Bo's awesome 80s vintage Shira playground. Yay! It's so fun. So Jenny and I watched the show, as you've heard many times before. We yes. loved the show as a kid. Yes, we did. We jump right into here yes. in our, once again, our pastiche. Though I feel this is more parody than pastiche. Mm, yes, yes. And not before we see Bo looking extra bisexual with his OG Bo mustache. I agree. This is definitely um, uh, a most bisexual. Actually, I think that Glimmer's thing was definitely a bisexual moment, and this is the most bisexual moment in the series. In, in the series, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I in this I don't like to think of them as being competitive with each other, but sure. Yeah, I mean, we have gayest moment. Why not? We have biased moment. 
That's true. That's true. So, here's another biased moment. Not biased, but biased. <laughs> yes. I am Bo, Shira's best friend and defender of Etheria. And zoom in on the, mu- like, and he's just his mustache smile as he's saying mm-hmm. this, this line. When the evil horde strikes, I strike back. And he's got a cape. And he's got a half of a shirt that's even less of a half a shirt than his usual half of a shirt. <laughs> oh, it looks awesome. <laughs> it does look awesome. And then all the princesses appear behind him in their original ridiculous but accurate 80s callback outfits. Yep. And Perfuma's kind of happy. Perfuma's the only one who's okay with it. She says, we get hats. We all get hats. And Mermosta's like pissed. And I think, is it Glimmer that picks up her her outfit and looks at it like, ah. Yeah, there, there, I didn't write down anyone's reactions other than yeah. Glimmer saying, uh, Mermosta saying, ugh. But yeah. But they're all they not all happy it. except for Perfuma. They all hate it. This is Perfuma's stoked because she gets like a flower crown. Yeah. Um, and then Bo says he destroys the turrets with his trick arrows. And then I have a note. Really? How are you going to destroy architecture with arrows, Bo? But I'll let <laughs> it go. Because again. trick arrows. Even trick arrows. I know. You're going to explode a whole building with your trick arrows? Yeah. As we've learned, as we've learned from Jenny's uh, architectural weapons moment, these are fucking fortified. Yeah. These are stone. You I know? think that like, it's possible, as we, as I learned in my first ever game of D anD D yesterday, you can inflict some amount of damage with some of your attacks, but that doesn't mean it's going to be enough to take it out. It's. I true. don't think bows arrows are going to be enough to take to take out all these turrets. But that's what I he's know. envisioning. That's what he's envisioning, because bows died enough. Let bow have his glory. Yes. Yes. And then he says Glimmer transports them into the tower, and then we see Bo's version of Catra, and it's just so much 80s. It's so 80s. It's got the 80s eyeshadow and yep, hair. Yep, the blue eyeshadow. And Sounds like a cat. Mm-hmm. Fools, you know. I won't let you destroy my perfect plan. <laughs> and Shira, again, is just like embarrassed and just beside herself. Like, what? And Glimmer thinks it's fucking hilarious. Which it is. Glimmer is so is. amused. She's like, this is kind of amazing. And then we have <laughs> Bo doing more dad jokes. Yep. And then I wrote time for the most painful dad pun battle of all time. Oh, yeah. Between Bo and Catra. Between Bo and Catra. Looks like I've got you meowed, evildoer. I'd pause to reflect on your upcoming death if I were Mew. I don't know. I'm feline pretty good right now. <laughs> and Adora is so embarrassed, she like has her hands over her face. She's like, okay. Oh, oh my God. You have to stop, stop. Stop. You gotta stop. You gotta stop. <laughs> and Marmista is, Marmista is definitely, um, has like. Now we're all just, hoping this plan will kill yeah. us. Yeah. Mermista hates puns. Yes. And then Catra turns into a super cool magic panther, which is a callback to the 80s show. Mm-hmm. But of course, Frosta points out that in this show, she can't actually do that. Yeah. Bo says she can now because it's the only battle figure he has available for her. Oh, also, uh, he ran out of robots, so um, the Horde has dragons. Yes. And that could be another callback to the 80s show. There was a dragon in the 80s show called Sorrowful the Dragon. Aww. He was a cowardly dragon, so I'm not sure if this Aww. reference tracks. Yeah, they had to, also... like, encourage him to stand up for himself and 
be a Aww. be a brave and courageous dragon. He's like an yeah. innocent, sweet kind of character. Oh, so that may or may not be a reference. Yeah, we also we also learn the end of this season that um, there the previous Shiras did have dragons. So, oh yeah, but you know it, it's it's very clear in this moment that Bo has just run out of figures, and so because of the figures that he's using, he's extrapolating new powers for the horde that they don't actually have in reality, which is not super helpful, even though not it might really. be fun for the game. Right. So we have Bo. He's like, don't worry, I will shoot the dragon with my net arrow. And of oh. course, we know what's going to happen. Yep. Bounces right off, puts tiny Bo in a net. It like comically ricochets off of everything a mm-hmm. hundred times before it lands boing, on him. Boing, 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 Oh, come on. And, and Adora's like, oh, she would obviously duck. You can't underestimate Catra or the Horde. Catra, Catra, Catra. And then it's like, well, if we can explain a weakness in the wall. <laughs> Except for perfume- now, it's like, wait, Perfuma, isn't it my turn? And Adora gets annoyed. This isn't a game. And then we have Perfuma. Perfuma <laughs> completely ignores her and says, I use my magic to grow a plant golem to take down the tower. And now we have the third installment of Weapons Corner in this episode, which is... Weapons Corner Creature Feature. For yes, the- I knew you were going to talk about the for golem. For the golem. So actually, yeah. it's, it's pronounced golem. Golem. Um, which okay. is different from Gollum, the little creepy dude in Lord of the Rings. Right. Um, this creature is from Jewish mythology. It's called a golem. Um, the Hebrew letters are Gimel, Lamed, Mem. And every word in Hebrew comes from a three-letter root. And one of the cool things about that is that all of the words that come from the same root, you can sort of see how they're all connected. So the three-letter root for the word golem, gimel, lamed, mem, means raw material, which I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. So the Wikipedia definition for golem is an animated anthropomorphic being in Jewish folklore, which is entirely created from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud, but it can be anything. Mm-hmm. So anthropomorphic uh, means an inanimate object that has been attributed to with human thoughts, feelings, existence, whatever. Right. So there was a great article. And, you know, this is something I do have a background in. But again, you want to distill this big cross-cultural concept into something small that we can digest quickly. So I found a great magazine article from a Jewish magazine called Moment Magazine. This cool. is a non-religious cultural American magazine from July, August 2017. There's an article called Jewish Word Golem, Mutable Monster by Marilyn Cooper. So I'm just going to cool. throw a few quick quotes that are really going to sum it up quickly. The, uh, the very first uh, reference to a golem in uh, Hebrew literature is the word galmi, and the ending I in Hebrew means mine, so it means it my, my unformed mass. First Ooh. appears in Psalms 139.16 in a later midrash about human creation, and midrash, again, is a Jewish word that talks about the ancient biblical interpretations of the Bible, so this is the ancient rabbi's interpretation. Adam is said to have been a golem himself, a body without a soul until the fourth hour of his ex- of his existence when God breathed life into him. That's awesome. So a body without a soul yeah. is a golem. Mm. Huh. So, and cool. there are many examples of this um, from throughout Jewish history. And of course, in, in contemporary literature, media, there's tons of examples that are not Jewish at all. There's plant golems, there's golems in TV and comic books and D&D and all kinds of contexts. Um, But just as an early example, in the 13th century manuscript by Rabbi Eliezer of Worms, an early German Kabbalist, gives detailed instructions for how to create a golem. 
and by the end of the century, summoning golems was a common part of Kabbalistic practice. So, you That's know, dope. Defend your village. Summon a golem. And in modern Hebrew and Yiddish slang, calling someone a golem basically is like saying they're a dumb lunk. I love it. You know, like you're just a big lump of clay with no brain and no soul. I love to that. be commanded by another. Oh, so, and I, I want to just give you one direct quote from this article that I feel like really captures it, and then we'll just move on. Yep. The golem is a highly mutable metaphor with seemingly limitless symbolism. It can be a victim or a villain, Jewish or non-Jewish, man or woman, or sometimes both. Over the centuries, it has been used to connote war, community, isolation, hope, and despair. So that's our golem. I love it. And then I have a little uh, Professor Smartbrain nugget of my own. Great. Perfumous golem is a nod to the, um, the anime Attack on Titan, which is a dark fantasy anime that premiered uh, April 7th, uh, 2013. Um, it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where the remnants of humanity live behind walls protecting them from giant humanoid titans. Full disclosure, folks, I've only seen like two episodes. I didn't really absorb them. That's not to say that it's not great. It has, it's a really, really popular anime, but I can't actually speak from expertise on this, only that I recognized the style and the um, function of the golem to rip down a wall cool. is similar to uh, the style of the Titans used in Attack on Titan and um, the function of the Titan, which is kind of to like, you know, it destroys these fortified cities. Solid. And I love the fact that even though, you know, like it's a monster, like she is summoning a monster to do her bidding, but it's still covered in flowers. I know. Like it's it's 99.9% vines. She could have made the whole thing out of vines. It does not need the flowers, but she can't help putting in the flowers because it's fucking Perfuma. I wonder if we're going to see a golem in our our D&D campaign. Oh, we definitely will. I think we will, too. Uh, there's no question. No question in my mind that that is going to no happen. No question that that's going to happen. Yes. So we see the golem. Perfuma puts herself on top of the wall. And when we see her, you know, move in a certain way, the golem just mirrors her movements. It lets out a giant roar of triumph. And then back back in the tent in reality, Bo raises his hand to ask a question. And he asks a really unnecessarily literalist question. He says, mm-hmm. if it's made of plants, how does it roar? Which, like, everything else in this has been, like, Right, because everything else has been so realistic. Right, like Bo's mustache. I know. And Perfuma just giggles and says, it's plant magic, right? It's magic. And I wrote, Bo, are you seriously nitpicking this after you put dragons in the horde? Yeah, no shit, right? Or, like, literally anything else that happens. Um, it's just, you know, again, going to show... I think it's more to show Adora's frustration with how... As far as she's concerned, how far away from reality everyone's plans are. Although yeah. I don't know why everyone's so convinced that Perfima couldn't make a plant golem if she wanted to. Yeah, exactly. She has Perfima's shown herself to be extremely powerful with the plant Perfima's magic. Super fucking powerful. So we'll like, see. We'll see what's we'll going to happen. We'll see. But then Adora says, with another eye twitch, Perfuma, we're not just making up whatever we want. It's like, you kind of are, though. Kind of are. And then Mermista says, plus your idea is dumb. Because Marista and Perfuma are just like, like, they're friends, but they're definitely antagonists. It's funny, like, like they're antagonistic, yeah. but they're always together. Like, they always are yeah. the ones who are fighting together and have each other's backs. Yeah, yeah. And they have this delightful antagonism as well. They really do. They have a great back and yeah. forth. So that's a perfect uh, segue for Perfuma to say, so what would you do? So let's see what would Marmista do? What Marmista 
would ride the wave of water above the wall and say, I am Mermista. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my trident and said, for the honor of gray whales. And then Mermista has a transformation sequence. Yes, into Sira. <laughs> into Sira. And once again, this I'm not going to go into because we've gone into this before, but this right. is a nod, once again, a pastiche of the magical girl transformation sequence, which we have every single time Adora transforms. Um, this one in particular kind of reminds me of uh, Sailor Mercury's from Sailor Moon. And that's all I'm going to get into that. But there we go. Another anime. Her, her dolphin is a unicorn dolphin and it rides on a rainbow wave. Yeah, it's like a, it's like kind of narwhal-y. I thought that too, but it's not like a narwhal actually has a different shaped yeah. head and face. Yeah, yeah but of course, ish. like, yeah. you know, Sea mammal with a horn. Narwhal. Yeah. You think narwhal. And it's like sparkle, sparkle, dolphin sparkle. I get shoes that are slightly better than my normal shoes. There's probably another dolphin. And this is a nice little meta thing. Where uh, it's Mermista... fantastic because she's just poking fun at all of the tiny little ridiculous uh -huh. things in the magical transformation. Yep. And then I twirl my hair. I twirl my hair does this thing where it's like looks all messy, but it's actually like really super beautiful. And I think that this is a this is a nod. I thought this was a funny nod to both Adora, right? Who of Adora course. Has, and Beach Waves. <laughs> Beach waves? That's right. Beach waves. It's a thing. So for people with straight hair, it's relaxed, loose waves that resemble hair that has been naturally dried after swimming in the ocean. Oh, I thought you were talking about actual waves of water no, on the beach. No, I was hair. Like, it's a, <laughs> no, it's a hairstyle for people with straight hair. Um, and it is, looks messy, but it's actually really super beautiful. And it's also kind of a, a cute little, like, just like we had kitten heels right, on Catra. Right, right. Of course. We have beach waves. An ocean-inspired uh, yeah. uh, hairdo. Fabulous. Yeah. And Dora's like, you can't turn into She-Ra. And Mermist is like, no shit, I'm Sira. I'm Sira, hello. And then Perfumus says, if Mermista gets to be Sira, then she wants her plant golem. And then enter Frosta. The winter's bane needs no help from a plant. The winter's bane. And Adora's basically like, what? Yeah. What and now? What now? And then we have this sick transition to Frosta's plan. Oh, which is so fucking metal. Which, yeah, everything about Frosta's plan, like, she is just such a ridiculous little badass. Mm -hmm. Like, we see, is, is there a specific genre influence that you had tapped on this? So I didn't, however, um, I do have this. So I reached out uh, to uh, one of my legendary friends and um, she gave me this awesome thing. So the Winter's Brain actually comes from an original character that Endy came up with as a kid. Oh, so that's in, adorable. In a, tweet, in a tweet from May 11th, 2019, Endy said that Winter's Bane was based on an uh, original character named Nightshade, who, who eventually turned into Nimona. Oh, wow. Which is the hero of Endy's first big original work. That's right, that they won their first Eisner for. Yeah, it's super cool. And also the armor is kind of a, a nod to like uh, mech anime type of things. Like, you know, mech anime is like big robot yeah. monster, yeah. you know, big it's just robot made of ice. armor. Yeah. Only it's made yeah. of ice. Yeah. And also she has this like eyebrow scar. Yeah. You know, yep. like the, the slashed one, eyebrow. The one closed eye and the eyebrow yeah. scar. Yeah. My enemies yeah, so. know me as Frostbite, Winter's Bane. My friends call me Bane. 
That is, if I had any. But no one comes close to the winter's bane! Like, and then you zoom out and you see this giant, awesome mecha ice suit that, like, Tiny Frosta is just at the top of this huge suit that's, like, 20 times bigger than her body with her badass eyebrow scar and her giant sword. I love this. And then explosion happens behind her. And it's like, badass, badass, blah, blah, blah. It's super epic. Yep. Super fucking yep. and epic. And so then after the explosion happens behind her, that's just like a stylistic thing. Nothing, mm-hmm. No action actually happens. It's all no. just stylistic. And then we switch back to reality into the tent and we see that she has made her own character sheet. For her Winter's Bane persona. And she drew her character. And it's so cute. It's adorable. She's got an obsidian broadsword that enhances strength plus three. And her finishing move is the snow strike. Which are both like, you know, once again, another D&D. Yes. Yes. Enhancing strength plus three. That's a specific gaming reference that even I picked up on. I was like, oh, wait, that's that's something specific. That's not just about like our battle plan. I don't think that's something you could use. In a real battle. I'm going like to re- I'm gonna enhance my strength plus three in this battle. So we're at, oh. So there's like a, a little tiny pink blob. <laughs> yes, what's that? <laughs> oh, that's uh, Winter's Bane's sidekick, Glimmer. What? Someone's not so thrilled with that. Glimmer's pissed. Yeah. Adora's like super fucking frustrated. Yeah, Adora's so stressed out that they're getting so far from the real plan. <laughs> and I have another <laughs> screenshot that I popped in here. Of Adora just looking so frustrated, teeth clenched, fingers clenched, just sort of standing over all of them like like they're cats that she's trying to herd. They need to fucking beat the Mitchells this year. They need to work together as a team to beat these Mitchells. Yeah. You can't beat the Mitchells by everybody just going off crazy in their own direction trying to have fun on their own. Yeah, how dare we have fun at the at the company picnic? Yes. The annual family capture the flag game is not about fun. It's not about fun. It's about showing the Mitchells who's the best. That's right. As and they devolve into arguing, and yeah. the, the little the little horde spybot creeps into the tent and starts transmitting back to the horde gang as they devolve into arguing. Yep. So so they got that. They have visual. They're turning on the audio, and then horde spybot. Seize all of these plans. My army of plant golems will take down the tower. Frostbite uses snow strike to encase the tower and then crap it, crack it apart. Pow. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. I love that Mermist is like, uh, Sierra will use a trident. Sierra will use the trident of power and Glimmer's pissed because there's no trident of power. And of course, Mermist is like, make me a trident of power bow. Yep. Yep. Small obstacle. It's fine. It's fine. Yep. Everything's fine. Yep. And so uh, Scorpia, Lonnie, and Rahelio are watching all of this and Scorpia is horrified. Horrified. We and is doomed. Whereas Lonnie's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. This is who we're fighting. Where they're just coming up with terrible ideas. None of this is real. Yep. And Scorpia's like, they're going to give us frostbite and attack us with a plant golem and a woman named Sira. And Bo's got to try to devour. Who oh. even knows what that is? We're doomed. Yep. And we do the love, like this hilarious, like zoom out where, yep. you know, the Scorpia's- dramatic music swells. Yeah, Scorpia's in all black except for just Scorpia, and she gets smaller and smaller as the camera zooms out, and it's just like ultimate isolation. Yep. 
And Lonnie assures her that none of that was real. Scorpia is not willing to risk it. And so they start to wrestle for control of the spy bot remote. And so meanwhile, while they're doing that, and so that because of that, the spy bot is kind of just like walking around at random, kind of mm-hmm. wonky, drunk spy bot, go home spy bot, you're drunk. And so while that's happening, Mermista spills her soda on the bot and it dies dramatically. Yeah, which... <laughs> Again, very cool. fun little moment. Soda ex machina. <laughs> yep. And then back at the Horde outpost, so they've lost the signal. Scorpius says, no! And then Kyle, go grab one of the other spy bots you packed. And Kyle's <laughs> Kyle. like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Was that my job? Seriously, Kyle? Seriously, Kyle? How many jobs do you have? Right. Not you, many. You had one job, Kyle. Yeah. So there's just more, like... More Michigas happening here, right? Yeah, yeah. they've just totally like, devolved into arguing and everyone trying to win with their own idea. And, and Adora know. just shoots them all down and says they're not taking Katra into account. Right. And now and we have a, a most delicious gayest moment, which is an entire montage of Katras. Of Katras. Uh-huh. The literal Katra, Katra, Katra. Katra, Katra, Katra. And I, I have this as my gayest gayest moment because it's just adora being overwhelmed by stupid all of her ex's personas basically yes yes all right want to go through them one by one yes definitely so we've got this scene of shira standing in front of the horde outpost as each version of katra flocks around her and we start with perfuma's version of katra which is this adorable frowny cartoon kid katra Yep, which and is like Catra's inner child, right? Because that's such a yes, perfuma thing, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And she says, I have a lot of negative things to say, and I hate flowers. <laughs> and there's like. She's like hands on her hips, and she's got adorable little tiny fanged frowny face. Yep, and then we have uh, Frosta's, who is my favorite Catra. Of course all she of is. Them. So Frost is Catra. I have his L.A. fuckboy Catra. So Catra, Catra slams in and puts her arm around Adora. And she's obviously Catra in a suit, right? With a glass of what is presumably wine in her hand. And fucking aviators mm-hmm. being like, I love ruining parties. And you can definitely hear like... Bet we gotta get out of this party. The scene's beat. I know like six other parties we can go to. Like, total fuckboy. I just have her as Shane Catra. Yeah, LA lesbian fuckboy Catra, aka Shane Catra. And then we've got Glimmer's femme fatale, edgy pink Catra. I'm was, a monster! Who is also doing the like kitty, like, like. Like rubbing against yes, Adora in the front, so and she's we have, still like, holding her kitty, and she's still holding her kitty. So Femme Fatale Catra is all up on Adora, yeah. And so Glimmer and Frost's Catras are just all like draping on Adora, That's true. rubbing Both on of her, them are. holding, That's hanging right. off of her, right? And then here comes Eighties Catra at last, yeah. And she just Who, says, "Roar! What a perfectly evil group." <laughs> and so we have, you know, Bo's Catra meows, Glimmer's Catra laughs, and Shira's like, like, you know, warms yeah. out the them and yells, no! And I'm like, come on, she Catra. Yells, None of this is right! It's like you have any issue being part of a Catra sandwich. Oh, 
Come on. That, but that's the whole point is she can't think clearly and do battle plans while she's right. in a Catra sandwich. Would anyone be able to do that? I don't think so, but especially not Adora. So. Especially not Adora. Stupid sexy Catra. Stupid sexy Catra. So we're going back to reality. Adora's like, none of this is right. And giant collective groan. Glimmer. The they're all done. Table. They're all done with the game. They're bored. They want to go home. They've been here it's, for hours. It's they're tired. Yep. Glimmer wants to attack already, and Adora wants them to have a perfect plan, like a perfect plan. Because Adora is super doing the Adora thing. That's right. Because if where, she's not perfect, then everyone's then going everyone's to, gonna die. Everyone's gonna die. Um, and this is like, this is kind of, you know, it's a really fun, goofy episode, but this is really the, the, the pathos of it. Too. Yeah. Like, so this, this is, is what's, exactly. yeah, this is what's driving Adora's, un, you know, annoyance. Her anxiety. Throughout the entire episode. Her anxiety. Yeah. Well, we see it as annoyance, but like, as it ramps up, we realize that this is anxiety. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. This is her anxiety expressing itself more and more intensely through the episode as the plans go more and more off the rails and she feels more and more out of control. Yep. So we get the speech, you know, Bo says, what's the worst that could happen? Mm-hmm. And then Adora paints a picture of exactly what that is. Like, do you want to know the worst that could happen? And, you know, she gives a speech of how, you know, everyone's going to die and it's going to be her fault. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Glimmer reminds her that she, Glimmer, managed to fight when she lost her powers and was captured by the Horde and they still managed to win. Mm-hmm. And then Glimmer gives us our titular line. <laughs> yep. A.K.A. what we learned today. Yep. Bad things are going to happen. That's life. You can let it paralyze you or you can roll with it. Ah. Figure out the things you can and trust that your friends have your back for the rest. It's a really, really good lesson. Yeah, this is a really deep takeaway for such a fun, zany, silly episode. Yeah, I feel like that's a lesson that a lot of us like need to learn over and over again. Absolutely. And it's perfectly yeah. in line with our overarching theme and lesson of the whole series, which is power friendship. Mm-hmm. Yep. And Perfuma casts friendship and support on of her course. next turn. Very Perfuma move. And then everyone else jumps on board. Everyone jumps on board. Mermista gives her regular trident, but calls it the trident of power. Yep. Since Bo is making me a new one. Yep. And Frosta has a great line. She says, the winter's bane stands with you. Also me, Frosta, stands with you. I can't tell if we're still in character or not. I love that. That's a great I'm like, line. I'm like, yep, we're, we, we get it. We yep, get it. Yeah. So what are we going to do now? Improvise. We're going to do what we do best. We're going to improvise for the honor of Grayskull. Let's go. Let's go. So now we get to actually see them doing the thing for real. Doing the thing. So we have the horde. The horde, you know, Lonnie has said, okay, here's our plan just in case. We added more bots to the weak points. Kyle is somewhere. Yep, everybody's looking ready. The flags are flapping. The troops and the bots are atop the parapets. Yep, There's a bot on top of one of the machine gun cannon things. I'm not sure what it's going to do from there, but they have, you know, yeah, they're flush whatever. with troops yeah. and bots. Yep, so they got their plan. They got their plan. Scorpia's still very worried about plant monsters, ice warriors, and Sira. Sure. But, but Lonnie you know, is not worried about any of that. Lonnie's not worried because they really did the best they could. And, and Lonnie also like, tells her none of that was real. Yeah. And so we got this. And mm-hmm. then 
Lonnie, we have another Hey Lonnie moment where Lonnie puts her arm behind her back and is blushing and just Well, the Scorpio says thank you to Lonnie. Yeah. yeah. And I, Lonnie I, blushes. Yeah, and does the like, oh gosh, and you yeah. see like Lonnie's hot. Anyway. We almost never see Lonnie blush. I know, I like this. I like, I like this little too. Lonnie. There's some good Lonnie in this episode. Yeah, there's some great Lonnie in this episode. So, we love Lonnie. Yes. And then Scorpio admits she doesn't know who Rogelio is, and that sweet moment passes. And she's like the lizard guy. Yeah. And Scorpio's like, oh, yeah, I wondered what his deal was. And I'm like, um, he's a lizard You've guy? been talking to him throughout the entire episode. Yeah. But, good job, Scorpio. Yeah, yeah. We, we still love you. Yeah, Scorpio does the best she can. But boom, here it comes. Boom, it can't be. But it is. It's Perfuma riding majestically atop her giant freaking plant golem. Which is awesome. It is awesome. And Perfuma is not stressed out at all. This is not straining her magic. She's no. giggling. She's so powerful. And she's, yeah, she's on, she's riding her golem and she says, for the She-Ra. Uh. I love how everything is for the... I love the she That's That's Perfuma's thing, I feel like. She's the I, I, only one who really says that. I know. I know. It's great. She loves it. Um, yeah, so... And then Scorpia. So then we have a fight. We have turrets yep. blasting golems. Yep, yep. We have ice magic. We have Frosta making uh, ice armor and ice gauntlets and fists... Ice fists. Yep. And when a piece of her ice armor gets knocked off, get Mermista supplying her with fresh water to make new ice. Which is so... Teamwork. Which is, uh, great. It makes the dream work. Of course. Um, and <laughs> Mermista made her own Sira outfit. Of course she did. Or maybe she had Seahawk make it for her. Yeah. You know, everybody's working together now. We see some split screen action okay, where so the- those arrows take out some of these cannons that have just been electrified by Mermista's wave. Mm-hmm. Right? Everybody doing their their things together to increase the maximum damage. Yep. And we have, so we have this, uh, another uh, 80s cartoon slash reboot slash anime slash animation reference here, where is we have the split screen of everybody shouting at the same time, and we have the boom, boom. So we have, you know, the She-Ra, Mermista, Perfuma, and then we cut to, like, Frost, and, like, all these, right. like... So that is a reference to Voltron. Ah, another show I've never seen. Another show that Jenny has never seen. So the original Voltron was uh, one of the more popular um, animes that was brought to America in the 80s, and it was actually... They took a couple of different animes and put them together. Um, they edited them together and then sold them as Voltron here. The figures were really uh, powerful here. Or, excuse me. The figures were really popular here. They were like, you would get these like different kind of vehicle things, which were, kind, you know, they're kind of like Transformers. And instead of them transforming into something, you put them all together and made one giant robot, which uh. was super cool. So you have all of these people working together, piloting a giant robot that they built together. So we have that sort of, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. That coming through. And um, the one I'm just going to really quickly high high level focus on because it had a really uh, strong fandom around it. Netflix rebooted Voltron. Netflix and DreamWorks, the same people, the same producers that rebooted She-Ra. So they rebooted um, Voltron as Voltron Legendary Defender which premiered on June 10th, 2016. Uh, Joaquim Dos Santos uh, 
was one of the showrunners who was also uh, involved in Avatar The Last Airbender. There was a lot of controversy around uh, LGBTQ characters. Um, it had, there was a lot of criticism. While, they, while there were queer characters, there was a barrier gays moment um, that really pissed off a lot of people. Um, I'm not going to get into that exactly, just that, you know, this happened. It was another, you know, reboot from DreamWorks and Netflix that did have uh, LGBTQ characters that were a little bit, this one a little bit problematic. And this is a reference to, cool. it's a reference to Voltron. So anyway, so we, and that's kind of the last uh, animation, anime, American animation reference that we have in the episode. So. The last like external, you know, we're going to make a nod to something in this episode. Sure, sure, sure. Before we yeah. get to the end of like, okay, before let's just have, you know, the yeah. final battle. So finally yeah. we have Shira running up to who she thinks is going to be Catra. But it's Scorpio. It's Scorpio. She says, it's over Catra, you've lost. <laughs> it's like, you know, she was like thinking about that the entire time. She's like, what am I going to say to Catra? <laughs> I know. Oh my God. You know. Right? Like, it took her it took her days to think of just that. It's yep. over Catra you've lost. It's a good job. Yeah, good job, Adora. Yeah, and there's Scorpia. Catra's not here, but I'm happy to take you down for her. Yep. Scorpia, even though, you know, things in this battle have gone downhill quickly, she is still confident. She's now muscle woman to muscle woman, her mm-hmm. and Shira. She's still yeah. confident. This is a good battle. Yeah, and I wrote, Scorpia actually on the attack, looking confident and deadly, is hot. Yeah. So in the background, we have some general rebel horde fighting shenanigans. Yep. We have some Kyle sucking at fighting. We have some Bo not dying. Good job, Bo. Good job, Bo. We have some Glimmer teleporting. You can tell that she's she's using a bunch of her magic. Yep. We go back to She-Ra and Scorpia. She-Ra's like, I can't, how, what? Catra's really not here and she left you in charge? And Scorpia's like, why do people get, keep acting surprised about that? Yeah. It's like, oh, sweet baby Scorpia. But Scorpia's a badass. Like, Scorpia oh, can she fight. Is. Of like, course, she of course. Fight. But just because she's a great fighter doesn't necessarily mean that she's the best strategic commander. Absolutely. And of course, again, we've established that she's a legacy force captain. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but you know, but she's got muscle and she's But got she's technique. a great fighter, no question. Yep, and she's she's, you know, kicking some ass. Yeah. She knocks Shira's sword out of her hand into the, the the river, which I'm only assuming they're able to get later because we never actually see them get the sword back, but right. I don't know. But it does get, appear again in the next episode. But it appears so. again, so hey. obviously they went and found it. Yes. So you know, you know, bully on them. Glimmer tries to help. But then Scorpia ends up overpowering her and dangles her over the edge of the wall. So Glimmer just swings at her. And of course, like, that. Glimmer has, like, zero self-preservation in yep. the situation. Yeah. And Scorpia's like, hey, you don't hit the person dangling you over the edge. Yep. And, yeah, Glimmer's just, like, you know, doing, you know, uh, sparkle punches, yep. right? Yep. Glimmer does not stop. And then Scorpia is just trying to get out this one sentence. She's like, I was saying, catch her trusts. And then Glimmer punches her. And she's like, hey, yeah, don't do that. And then, you yeah. know, eventually Glimmer ends up being thrown into Shira's arms. And she says, it's your turn now because I'm completely out of magic. Mm-hmm. So that's another, even though we've well established the D&D thing here, it's like, okay, my turn is over. It's your turn now. Yeah. Scorpia keeps trying to get out this three word sentence, Catra trusts me. 
But she mm-hmm. can't because she keeps getting hit with each princess's power in turn as she says the words Catra and trusts. <laughs> Catra slam. Catra slam. Yeah. Okay, seriously? How many of you are there? And then she turns and sees all the glowing princesses plus yep. Bo not glowing. Yep. Who's not ready, glowing this time. All yep. ready to kick her ass. And she says yep. in a perfectly conversational tone, oh, too many. <laughs> and then over she goes yep. over the wall. And she lands in the water conveniently right next to where Kyle, Lonnie, and Rahelia are preparing a boat for escape. Yep. But on bump. And the horde flag comes down. And the rebels cheer. The rebels cheer. They have taken the pass. They have conquered the the tower. The outpost. They the outpost, yeah. yeah. And Glimmer says to Shira, good planning session. Yeah. Oh, and then we have a uh, best friend squad moment. There's all yep. sorts of Hugging and loving and squishing and yeah, yeah. We're going to win in the end. Hooray. We're going to win in the end. Hey, see, see, they won. They did. They did, you know. It's they not won. the end. It's not the end. They won. But they won today. They did win today. They, and then... The outpost. The outpost has been reclaimed. Huzzah. Huzzah. And then Scorpio says, "How all in favor of blaming Kyle on, uh, blaming us on Kyle. Yeah. Unanimous. Everyone. Unanimous. And Kyle's like, oh, man. Yeah. He's pretty accepting and that's how we end the episode yep and then we end the episode with some vintage 1985 shira tv movie secret of the sword which is awesome (laughs) for the honor of love remember Remember. I love that you remember that. I see. I remember the the theme song. The yeah, I remember that too. But yeah, when they played this I one, I really remembered it. I don't know. I must have seen it a lot. Yeah, yeah. We definitely. have the power, so can you? Aww. And then, y'all, we learned some stuff today, Jenny. Yes, we did. Well, we learned that there's a lot of shit you can't control. Yep. And that. That's okay. You just got to do the best with the things you can control. You got to roll with it and trust your friends, baby. Yep. You got to trust your friends and just roll with it. We also learned some of us how to play D&D. Yeah, Jenny. I learned how to play D&D. Jenny learned how to play D&D. I I learned that Jenny is really awesome. It's like awesome to play D&D with. (laughs) It was, it's really fun. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yes, yes. Um. And, and I also learned a lot about some bunch of different fun film and TV and cartoon styles that have all been influences on our fun favorite queer TV show. Hooray! Huzzah! So, and you, dear listeners, learned that, that's right, our next episode after this will be our Shira D&D podcast episode where you get to hear me, Jenny, producer Ashley, and some really awesome special guests play this campaign. This we actual going, campaign. We are going to play the role of the campaign. We're going to be the Princess Alliance. We're going to go against the Horde. We're going to try to get Kyle off some turret, off some parapets. We're gonna, we're gonna destroy some. We're bots. gonna win in the end. We're gonna win in the end. Yes, I'm gonna be Perfuma, and I am going to be the Shira. Yes. And Ashley is going to be Glimmer, and we have a bunch of, a few other awesome players. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be really fun. So please, you know, stick around and tune in on that one, because we're really excited for that. 
Well, folks, if you liked what you heard and you want a plus two charisma bonus on your next roll, you can like and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at HeyAdoraCast. You can email us all of your character sheets at HeyAdoraCast at gmail.com. Hey, Jenny, did you know we had a Patreon? I heard. Yeah. I heard uh, you have some pretty cool stuff over there. We do. Some fun perks and bonuses. Yeah, we have some really cool perks and bonuses if you sign up for our Patreon. We have a private Facebook group and a hopping Discord server. It's super fun. Uh, we have I'm giving exclusive playlists. We're getting Patreon-only video hangouts. We, we watched Roll With It. We're going to watch way more things. We have a freaking blast on our Discord server. We do. And we're offering so, so much more. So you can find the link to our Patreon as well as the link to this week's super epic playlist, Roll With It in our show notes, or at heyadora.gay. That's, That's right. right. Heyadora.gay. Dot gay. And remember, queer joy is radical. And queer love saves the universe.